Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauk, and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. Thank you. Dr. Harris mentioned that I'm a mathematician. In fact, I have to confess, I'm a fallen math mathematician. I, am, uh, I have confronted the truth of mathematics, and it's kind of a secret among mathematicians. And that secret is that math is just a game. It's not the only way to truth. It's not the best way to truth, as a matter of fact. When I was a kid, I was told that the way to truth, and I was very interested in finding truth, but the way to truth was mathematics. And I'm still being told that today. And I geared my whole life to learning mathematics. Uh, but it wasn't until I was in graduate school at the University of Vienna in Austria when I came across a professor there named Kurt Gerdell. And Kurt had proven that mathematics is a game, that the foundations of mathematics, in fact, any linear logical system is false. In other words, it cannot lead to final truth. And they proved that by working with what's called self-referencing propositions, Something like um, if the, the sentence, this statement is false. Well, if the statement is false, then it must be true. But if it's true, how can it be false? And you, you get caught up in that loop. And that'll burn out computers, just like Captain Kirk used to do with the big, <laughs> the big computers. You give it this question that goes over and over again. And that's what happens in mathematics. The foundations of mathematics are built on propositions like that. So the only parts of mathematics that are, can lead us to truth are those parts that have irrational parts, irrational numbers, like uh, sacred geometry or um, uh, fractals, fractals in the mathematics of chaos, working with irrational numbers and things like that. So there, even though I'm going to be talking about seven steps to transformation, this is not a linear process. It, it involves both sides of our brains, both sides, the, the rational and the irrational, left and right, male and female. The whole secret of alchemy is bringing these two things together. And when we can achieve that, we can achieve truth, and we can achieve the direct experience of truth, being in the presence of truth. And that's what it's about. So um, mathemat mathematics is not really a good credential among seekers for truth. Uh, and I think alchemy is. So, so today I'm going to be an alchemist, and we're going to work through the stages of alchemy. And the history of alchemy, where it all started, goes back to Egypt. Manley Hall knew this, and, and uh, seekers of truth all over the world know that this is where it started. The tablet, the Emerald Tablet, contains a succinct summary uh, of the principles of alchemy, and that is uh, where alchemy came from, where its roots came from. Uh, the medieval alchemists had copies of the Emerald Tablet hanging on their laboratory walls. They were constantly going over to the tablet and referring to this secret formula that it contained. And that's the secret formula that I'm going to reveal today. According to tradition, the Emerald Tablet was written by mysterious visitors to Egypt about 12,000 years ago. There were, we know how many there were, there, there were nine. They were called the Ennead, or the group of nine in the text. They arrived at a time called Zeptepi, uh, a time when godlike beings walked the earth. We don't know where they come, came from. Uh, maybe they were just archetypal gods that the uh, the Egyptians experienced in their own minds. Maybe they were mysterious visitors from Atlantis. Maybe they were extraterrestrials, but we judged them on what they left. And what they left was supreme wisdom. Uh, writings and documents that show us a way to 
a different type of intelligence, an intelligence of the heart, a whole knowing of reality and an experience of truth that we can work with and change our own reality. And that's what the alchemist of Egypt tried to do, actually to change reality. We've come to that point, uh, and some of my quantum physicist friends will agree, that we can say we know that the mind can change reality, that mind uh, has an influence on matter, that uh, the consciousness of the observer in a lot of uh, quantum mechanical experiments can actually influence the outcome of an experiment. I was working with a, a physicist named Helmut Schmidt from Germany, who actually did some experiments with people's beliefs and proved that if people believe that they could increase a clicking sound, uh, that, the, that that sound would increase in frequency from a steady clicking sound to a, a accelerated sound. The only thing is that clicking sound was coming from a Geiger counter, and it was uh, detecting the radioactive decay of uh, iridium. And that's not possible. It's not possible to increase the radioactive decay rate of an element. If that were possible, then then we wouldn't have a problem with radioactive waste. So he's proven that without a, without a doubt that uh, the expectations of observers can influence the outcome of experiments. I think the Egyptians knew that, that connection between mind and matter. When it was the duty of one of the group of nine, a person or a godlike being named Toth, to be like a liaison between the, these godlike beings and, and the Egyptian people and the Egyptian priest. He served to translate their knowledge into the vernacular, more or less. Uh, Toth is considered the inventor of mathematics, the inventor of music and science, and the inventor of writing. He invented hieroglyphics, which uh, the, the original hieroglyphics, which were sacred symbols, archetypal symbols that elicited true responses from people, very different from the alphabet-type hieroglyphics we, we hear today, um, although it's probably directly related to the original hieroglyphics. Um, and Toth served to, uh, to instill that knowledge in the people around him. Now, knowing that a great flood was going to inundate the planet, Toth summarized the principles and the teachings of, uh, of these group of nine in the Emerald Tablet, a very succinct summary of these principles. And uh, he also wrote hundreds of texts, various texts that, uh, in, on papyri and scrolls that he also used to summarize the teachings that these visitors brought to Egypt. He sealed these texts in two pillars. One contained the Emerald Tablet and the other contained the manuscripts. Um, these were real pillars. I mean, they survived the Great Flood. We know we, we have documents of people who have actually seen them. The two pillars of Hermes is the name uh, they're known by because Hermes was the Greek word for Toth, uh, the original scribe. Um, these pillars were seen by Herodotus. They were taken Heliopolis and Thebes and uh, separated, one pillar in Heliopolis, one in Thebes. And uh, so they were real things that survived, and the, the documents survived the Great Flood. The pharaohs and the pharaonic tradition were based on a lot of the teachings in, from Toth that survived. I don't know if they knew where they come from even, but uh, they, they realized they were important documents, and they built a lot of the monuments of Egypt based on these teachings, I'm sure, especially in the, during the dynasty of the Amenhoteps especially Amenhotep IV, Akhenaten, Pharaoh Akhenaten. Very strange individual. Uh, in fact, uh, he's been called the extraterrestrial pharaoh because he looked so weird. He had a very long, elongated head, 
in a pear-shaped body, spindly legs and, and spindly uh, arms as, as if he'd been in space for a long time. Uh, he was also said to share male and, and female genitalia. He was thought to be a hermaphrodite. So by any sense of the word, he was a very strange man. But he was also a very enlightened man. He, uh, he came to believe uh, that the Emerald Tablet contained the sum of all knowledge. He was born with the name Akin, Akin, um, I'm sorry, Akinaman, which meant the servant of the Amen, which was kind of an original Egyptian god that the, the priest had served at the time. Amen really is best viewed as the god of, uh, god of ego, a patriarchal god, god that the pharaohs sacrificed to when they wanted wealth, when they wanted to win a war, when they wanted material things and material gain. Well, Akhenaten set up a whole new religion with only one God. According to the Emerald Tablet, there's only one God in the universe. The Emerald Tablet uses very, very generic terminology and calls the one God of the universe the one, the one mind. Rather than uh, setting up a religion, it talks in very generic terms. So it views God as one mind, as the ultimate mind. And that is how Akhenaten presented this new God to Egypt. He called the God the Aten, which uh, is also a very objective way of looking at God. It means the sun or the solar disk or uh, uh, the solar energies that come from the, the, the ultimate light of the universe, the one mind. And he instilled the principles of the Emerald Tablet into Egyptian society. He set up a whole new city, moved the capital from Thebes, and uh, in that city he made it spiritually based. The first thing he did was to mix men and women together. Never done in Egyptian society. Egypt was a very uh, patriarchal society before Akhenaten. But he mixed the living quarters, uh, everything. I mean, there were unisex washrooms in Akhenaten City long before Ali McPeel ever thought of it. There were all kinds of uh, mix, and the, the women and the men could talk in uh, together and with philosophize together, because the Emerald Tablet teaches that the masculine and the feminine ways of thinking are both equally valid, that intuition and intellect have to come together to make intelligence of the heart, which was the ultimate goal of Egyptian teachings. I think that uh, Akhenaten, however, was very uh, progressive, but also rather uh, rude to some of the priests of Amen. They got very upset with his regime. It only lasted 17 years. Akhenaten, though he was kind of an ugly duckling, ended up marrying uh, the most beautiful woman in the world, Nefertiti. And uh, he and Nefertiti were mercilessly slaughtered by the priest of Amen. Uh, they were cut into bits and fed to dogs, which is the ultimate uh, insult in Egypt because they believed, of course, that the mummy, uh, that the body and the mummy had to survive uh, to, to last in the, uh, in the afterworld. But by cutting him up and, and feeding him to dogs, there was no chance that he would go on. Not only that, but they, everything that he'd written was destroyed. The temples that he'd built, uh, his, if you go to Egypt today, you can see an Armana, uh, his face defigured, his writings scratched over. They erased his teachings from the world, or so he thought, or so they thought. Actually, the teachings went underground um, with, uh, with the priests that he had taught in what he called his school of breathings. And a lot of the initiation ceremonies took place in the pyramid at Chaos, uh, at uh, 
in the king's chamber, actually. The emerald, it's thought that the emerald tablet was actually stored in a, in a great sarcophagus that's uh, in the king's chamber. If you've been there, you know that that sarcophagus doesn't look like a sarcophagus. It looks like a big coffer, although a man can fit in it. It's, it's very different from anything else in the area. It's made of kind of a chocolate-colored marble or granite that was uh, brought in from far, far away. Some people have suggested even Atlantis, but I don't know about that. Uh, but it is very different. So it's not, I don't think it's a, a sarcophagus. In fact, uh, according to some of the, the um, teachings, there was a direct initiation there, either by exposing these people to the Emerald Tablet. There's, there's uh, reports that the Emerald Tablet was actually a glowing light itself uh, that, that became incorporated into a person, the direct ex- transmission of knowledge. Or one tradition holds that uh, Akhenaten, as part of the initiation into his uh, school, would seal someone up in this sarcophagus, put a lid on it for eight minutes until all the oxygen ran out. The person would nearly die and then have an out-of-body experience and, and realize the light <laughs> in that way. So there's a lot of different things, but some, some interesting things went on in the king's chamber uh, during Akhenaten's time. We know that. After uh, Akhenaten died, the teachings of the uh, Emerald Tablet that were written and also the Emerald Tablet itself were taken, we think, uh, to Siwa which is an oasis, a former uh, temple to Amman, uh, and hidden underneath that temple. That's what some of the teachings uh, suggest. When I was there, it, it was in Libya, but now it's back in Egypt. The border changed a little bit. And Siwa was nothing, but it's about as big as this stage, and it's nothing but ruins. But according to the teachings underneath there is where uh, the tablet and the teachings of Akhenaten and Toph were, were hidden. When Alexander the Great became pharaoh of Egypt, when he conquered Egypt and went into Egypt, uh, within two weeks of his assuming leadership of Egypt, he was uh, the, the secrets of Egypt were revealed to him, of course, and also the location of the Emerald Tablet and the teachings of the Tablet. And he, after just being there a couple of weeks, made a, a grand pilgrimage to Siwa, which was out in the middle of the desert, and uh, retrieved both the Emerald Tablet and these teachings and brought them back to uh, to Heliopolis, where he put the Emerald Tablet on public display uh, in 332 B.C. Uh, we know this from some of the letters um, that um, people wrote about seeing it. In fact, in Manley Hall's great work, there is a, a reproduction of one of the letters where the man uh, describes seeing it, t- telling it was a very perfect, perfect work. There's a picture of it that's just an amazing picture uh, of what the original Emerald Tablet looked like. They they describe it as a, a base relief. With in other words, you could touch the letters, but in, made in a very perfect way. It was like a crystalline green tablet, made with a technology that seemed very advanced to the man who wrote the letter. And there are similar letters like that. So we think that the Emerald Tablet was uh, actually put on public display. We know that um, Alexander took the documents of Toth and and set up a group of scholars to translate the Emerald Tablet into Greek and these other documents. In fact, it's probably the reason that he founded Alexander, is to publish and translate these documents. Now, um, in fact, uh, there was a, a committee, there were slight revisions made in the Emerald Tablet in uh, 330 B.C., in three, 270 B.C., and in 50 B.C. We know that from the writings and the, and the publications in Egypt. Um, after 
Alexander went on to India through after he conquered Babylonia, um, he took the emerald tablet with him. At least that's the tradition. And he hid the emerald tablet on his way to Babylonia in an underground cave, thinking he was going to retrieve it and take it back to Macedonia with him. However, unfortunately, he died on the way back uh, from India, and the uh, the whereabouts of the cave were, only, were probably only known to a few, if anyone. The next time the emerald tablet turns up in our history is in, I'm sorry, 32 AD, when a youth, a very special child named Balinus, 16-year-old boy, who was really thought to be very special from birth. Uh, the, the, the descriptions of Balinus are that he was extremely beautiful and graceful and, and wise, far beyond his years. He knew many, many languages, picked up languages just on hearing him the first time. In fact, he was so advanced and, and that his father thought there must be something wrong with him. And he took him to, uh, to priests to say, and he said, there's something wrong with my child. He's, he's not a boy. He's, he's too advanced. And, He's possessed, and that's what his father actually thought, and uh, took him to a group of priests, and the priest uh, told him, no, he's not ill, he's a god. <laughs> Just what his father wanted to hear. <laughs> and uh, and that, that decision, after that, his father didn't have anything to do with him. According to the writings of Belinus himself, uh, Belinus felt like, a, a, like an orphan after that. He wandered the streets of Tiana, where he grew up, which is a city in Cappadocia, in uh, what is now Turkey. And he wandered the streets seeking wisdom, seeking an adult male to talk to him and, and transmit knowledge. He'd, he'd go up to merchants who were traveling through the town, or just travelers and soldiers, and, and pump them for all their knowledge. I mean, he was a true seeker of knowledge and wisdom. One day, Belinus, according to his own writing, was on the outskirts of town, and he came across an old statue, a very old statue, written in uh, Aramaic, which was not the language, Syrian was the language at the time, that identified the statue as Hermes, a statue of Hermes Trismegistus, meaning Hermes the thrice greatest one. And uh, on the the placard also said that uh, he who seeks the final truth or the ultimate truth should kneel before me to learn. And Belinus took that literally. He literally kneeled and... Uh, Return to that statue over and over again. I mean, if he was doing it today, we'd think he was an obsessive person for sure, or some type of person, a psychotic perhaps. But he went to that statue, according to his writings. He communed with this statue, like you, like he would a human being, or, or like he would a father. He communed with that a statue, and he learned from it, according to his writings. Hermes taught him, and he was so enthused by this new knowledge he was getting from from this different level of reality that. Uh, he wanted to learn more about the teaching of Hermes. And he quit his schools in Tiana and went uh, to Greece, to, the, to a school, a Pythagorean school. And it was known that the Pythagorean school and the Hermetic teachings were intimately involved with each other. And, uh, and also a disciple of Hermes called Asclepius uh, set up a school there that he went to. So he sought out the Hermetic teachings. He sought out the Hermetic knowledge. But he wasn't really satisfied with what his teachers said. He was a horrible student. I mean, he'd tell his teachers that they were ignorant, that they didn't know the truth. I mean, right in class, he was not the student that you'd want to teach. Nobody would want to teach him. And he did this until he finally drew out all the knowledge he could get about the Hermetic teachings, still not satisfied that they were true. So he went back to Tiana, 
and had another one, one evening, went to the statue, according to his own writings, and knelt before the statue and wanted to commune with Hermes. Well, he fell asleep at the statue, and he had a dream about Hermes coming to him. And in the dream, Hermes said just one thing, look below your feet. He was woken up at sunrise, he says, by a beam of light coming from the sun, shaken from his dream. He instantly knew that the plaque on the statue meant kneel before my feet, meant dig here, that there was a cavern underneath the statue that contained great knowledge. That's what he felt intuitively. He immediately started digging. He uncovered a cavern underneath the foot of the statue, and uh, it was pitch black in there. He waited for the sun, he said, to enlighten the, uh, the entrance to the cavern, and it was just pitch black. He, he went in a few feet, and the winds blew down. There was a huge cavern. The winds were so fierce that they nearly blew him back. He's a very scrawny kid. And he was very uh, disappointed that he'd found this secret chamber where, where the knowledge was supposed to be hidden, and yet he couldn't penetrate it. He couldn't penetrate that darkness. So, again, he went back to the home of his parents and slept, had another dream where a man came to him, a man he couldn't identify. And the man told him to penetrate the darkness, he needed to make a lamp, an oil lamp, and then put a glass over it. I don't know if that was the first lantern ever suggested in history or not, but it was something that people in the Tiana area had never seen before, a glass over a, a, a lantern flame. And when uh, Linus awoke, he knew that this knowledge had come to him from another higher source also. In fact, in the dream, when he asked this presence who he was, because he didn't trust him, giving him this secret, because he didn't know him, the dream person told him, I am you, your perfected self. So Linus went back into the cave with this light, this lantern, and sure enough, it didn't blow out after he got back. To, and as he went deeper into the cave, the wind stopped blowing. Uh, he came upon, according to his own description, a great throne. And in the throne was Hermes, a mummified body of Hermes, or Toth himself, dressed in a, in a fancy robe, well-preserved. In his arms was the emerald tablet. He pried the tablet loose from his arms. There were three books at the feet of... Um, of Hermes, he took those two, took them out of the cave, and studied them. The very day that he found them, he said, he took a vow of silence. Now that's not something, that's not something any of us would do. If we, if we were to find something like that, we'd want to run out and tell the whole world. You know, we'd want to get it published before somebody else. <laughs> but no, Bolinus took a vow of silence because he didn't want to even think or talk about this until he had absorbed what he'd found, knowing that it was some type of ultimate knowledge. He didn't speak for five years. Belinus never spoke for five years after that. He tried to communicate with people by what he called the true language, by using his eyes and gestures and, and projecting, tried to projecting thoughts into people's minds. And that's how he got along for five years. I mean, this is a 16-year-old boy. And he was 21 before he spoke a word. And then when he spoke, he didn't stop speaking. <laughs> he went around the world telling people about the Emerald Tablet and the teachings of the Emerald Tablet. 
um, what it meant and how to apply it in your life. He especially went towards um, churches and organizations that existed at the time, uh, telling them, trying to revive, uh, make them living organizations. That was the whole point of the Emerald Tablet. Knowledge has to be living. It can't be dead. So you can't have dogma and doctrine in a church. You, can, you, you must have experiential knowledge. And he tried to do that. And he tried to do it on many different levels by working with the priest. Sometimes he would leave uh, little talismans uh, behind the altar in secret. He would charge gemstones sometimes with what he thought he could do with the spiritual power to put this knowledge at the at this altar or at the, or at the main point of a church or at the main point of a meeting hall. And uh, people who'd found uh, these talismans of... Uh, of uh, Bolinus, say they were charged with energy. They could feel them. And there was a great trade uh, that started up in these little stones that people said were from Bolinus. You know, it was just, just like uh, multi-level marketing. Everybody come up with some stones that they said was Bolinus. So these talismans uh, were all over the world, and people were buying and trading them in half. I mean, just a very small portion of them were genuine talismans from, from Bolinus. He got such a reputation as a, as a great healer and uh, magician, he, got, he gained the name Apollonius of Tiana, which is uh, uh, Apollo, uh, Apollo is the sun god, of course, and that Bolinus that, uh, was the bringer of knowledge. Uh, it's just a wonderful story about Bolinus because we do have a few of his writings. He's, he was such a spiritual person. Um, he meditated three times a day. He, gre- he greeted the sun every morning to meditate, because he felt that from the sun, according to the teachings of Toth, came a, a mysterious, invisible power. The Emerald Tablet calls it the one thing. It's like a plastic chaos that you can project thoughts in to form it. That's how the universe was formed, according to the Emerald Tablet. The one mind, or the mind of God, projected his thought form, or his word, or his vibration into the chaos of existing matter, the one thing, and that created the universe. And from that pattern, everything corresponds below that. That's another principle of the Emerald Tablet, that as above, so below. So in our own minds, our own little minds, <laughs> we have that same power if we can reach it, if we can tap into it. And Belinus felt that deeply in his heart. He greeted the first rays of light as first matter, what the alchemists would call first matter, the uncreated matter, this matter that exists kind of between the above and the below, or between manifested reality and thought or ideals. And that you could, if you could accumulate enough first matter, you could do anything with it. And that was really, in the Middle Ages, the alchemists went all over the place looking for the first matter. And by their descriptions of it, literally, uh, well, literally-minded alchemists made a lot of crazy mistakes. They, the, the first matter was described most often as the rejected thing, something rejected, something that we, we don't uh, recognize in our lives. And that was the main way it was described. Well, that included all kinds of weird things, like uh, one description of the animal tablet was a pile of feces. Another description was uh, the dew that uh, comes on the land. The urine of boys was a very popular <laughs> description. In fact, alchemist, the discovery of phosphorus was because an alchemist was searching for the first matter. And what he did, he'd take the urine of boys, and this must have been something. Uh, he had about 700 gallons of the urine of boys, and he distilled it in a continuous distilling process over and over for seven months. 
And you know what happened? The final distillation in the, in the retort, it started glowing. He had refined phosphorus, which is in urine, to the point where he accumulated enough that it charged from the light. And in the dark, this, this uh, vessel of water started glowing this, this eerie green color. And he was sure, of course, that he'd found the first matter, but it was phosphorus uh, that he distilled from urine. So that's, that's just one example of how, how the folly of literally interpreting some of these things have, have led alchemists astray in the past. Mercury, for a long time, was thought to be the first matter because it's a liquid metal, because it can take the shape of a container, because it reflects you when you look into it, like it reflects your thoughts. Especially in the Orient, uh, alchemists thought that this is the first matter, this is the elixir, this is what will change our lives. So they started ingesting it, and of course, uh, not many. Uh, I, I imagine that hundreds of alchemists died from mercury poisoning. Mercury is a wonderful substance. It has a lot of uh, signatures that are very esoteric. Um, for one thing, it has a dual personality, and it's often called the rebus, or the two-headed thing in alchemy, because on the one hand, it's a great healing agent. Red mercuric oxide is, uh, uh, for instance, used in mercurochrome. Uh, it's a great healing agent, one of the earliest healing agents. In the Middle Ages, they used it to heal syphilis. It was about the only thing that would. On the other hand, the, the white mercuric oxide is one of the world's deadliest poisons. Just a, a, a racer head full of uh, mercuric oxide would kill all of us in here. And, of, of course, the alchemists, being experiential laboratory people, often tasted uh, their concoctions to see you know, what signatures they could pick up, what influences they could pick up. And, and those who tasted the white mercuric oxide, of course, fell to the floor <laughs> because it's a deadly poison. So the search for the first matter is an important part of uh, alchemy. After, uh, after Bolinus uh, went through the world, and actually I think Bolinus was responsible for the, the early roots, certainly for the early roots of alchemy in Egypt, in, in um, Hellen Hellenic, uh, Hellenic Egypt, and also in Arabia, uh, because um, his teachings were translated into Arabian. He was a great influence on some of the early alchemists in Arabia, like Geber and others. Uh, unfortunately, though, about 200 years after Bolinus died, he was a contemporary of Jesus, and uh, the church felt that Bolinus was in direct competition. I should call him Apollonius of Tiana, was in direct competition with Jesus. Well, he wasn't, but that's what they thought at the time. And uh, because their lives were so similar, the miracles they performed were so similar, the disciples were so similar, uh, there's even some thought that Bolinus was uh, Jesus, that the whole thing was made up by the church. I mean, that's not necessarily my, my opinion. but So uh, the church decided to destroy all the teachings of Bolinus, all his books. We're talking hundreds of books were burnt. In, in 400 A.D., Christian zealots went out th throughout the world and destroyed temples to Bolinus, temples to, to everyone, actually. Any pagan temple was destroyed. Uh, ripped apart, and uh, usually uh, at the site a Christian uh, church was set up. Uh, they burned hundreds and hundreds of books and uh, destroyed all copies of the Emerald Tablet. According to uh, some texts, the Emerald Tablet was saved from this just before the, uh, the Christians attacked the libraries of Alexandria by being brought to the Giza Plateau, where it was hidden for safekeeping, where it allegedly it sits, t 
sits to this day. And Belinus, Belinus's teachings survived to us only because they were translated into Arabian and, uh, and the Christians didn't have access to the Islamic libraries. So when the Islams uh, invaded uh, Spain, the Moorish invasion, they brought the Emerald Tablet with them. And from there, the Emerald Tablet was translated into Latin. There were three Latin translations and those translations circulated throughout uh, Europe and were the impetus for, uh, for alchemy, for the beginning of alchemy. When the tablet itself was integrated into the teachings in Europe, the tablet wasn't connected as much to uh, paganism at the, at the time, at the early introduction of the tablet. So it actually became part of the early teachings of the church. And the, the church used the tablet, used the teachings of Hermes to kind of further their, their, uh, their dogma for a long time. But then they started realizing that when they started reading the tablet <laughs> and reading some of this stuff, that it really was promulgating a, a different view of the universe, a view that in your own privacy of your own home, of your own room, you could reach God through meditation, through stilling the mind and following these seven steps that were delineated in the Emerald Tablet. When they realized that, then of course they started persecuting alchemists and, and uh, burning copies of the tablet and trying to suppress that knowledge. Well, the whole thing went underground at that time for a second time in our history, uh, and the tablet and the principles of the hermetic teachings went into tarot cards. And there's some tradition that the tarot cards go back to Egypt, but there was certainly an influx of new impetus to have the tarot cards at, at this time when alchemy was going under in Egypt, in uh, Europe, because the alchemical processes were incorporated into the tarot images. These are archetypal images, and basically it's all there really uh, in the tarot cards. There's the elements, the four elements, uh, pentacles is earth, and cups is water, and uh, swords is air, and the wands is fire. Um, those, are, those are the main cards. The trump cards carry these archetypal principles, these seven steps we're talking about in the Emerald Formula. Uh, there are 21 of those. There's another tarot card called the Fool card, or the Zero card, which is outside this alchemy. So you work with these cards, and you try to work through the alchemy of, um, of transformation with the tarot cards. Now, there's seven steps. The alchemists believe that there were seven magisteriums, or you had to work through these seven steps seven, three times to achieve perfection. So there's like 21 cards there. And these correspondences are, are mentioned in, and delineated in my book, but the, the church, of course, knew something was going on with these tarot cards, that people were meditating, and they didn't like that. The church wanted to be the intermediary between people and God, just like the priest of Amen. In fact, the priest of Amen are with us today because that's how we end our prayers today. That's the same tradition, the same tradition. And then you can follow it right on back. And the church uh, was very much against this idea that people could do this on their own. And they associated that problem with, um, with women, really. They associated it with the feminine consciousness, with intuition. They felt that that's what you did in meditation. You became passive and let this knowledge come down into you rather than being a, a male and, and knocking on the door of God or, or sacrificing for God or doing active things like that. So they attacked women. And uh, that's what the, the witch craze was all about. And the Inquisition, millions of women were burned at the stake. Six million, probably. Anything feminine. Anything feminine. The word faggot comes from the 
uh, kindling. That's a word for kindling. And when they burnt witches, they'd round up homosexuals too and start the fire with these uh, faggots, <laughs> with this, this kindling wood, because they were feminine, because cats, another feminine object, they'd put cats in wicker baskets and throw them into the flames. That's where the Easter basket tradition <laughs> came from. They, they walled living cats into, uh, behind walls and new buildings uh, as, a, as a superstition. Uh, literally, millions of cats were destroyed, too, during this period. It's amazing what went on. Um, the Pope's apology just barely covers it, believe me. <laughs> in fact, in true hermetic irony, the destruction of the cats caused the rat population to rise, which caused the plague to come to Europe, which, which took the lives of a couple popes and a few bishops, too. So. <laughs> I have some copies of the Emerald Tablet back there, and I know, I know Kent begged me to bring put some things out for the Emerald Tablet. For <laughs> so I did. But the Emerald Tablet, uh, I, I hope you get a chance to read it, but let me recite it for you, and you can just get a feeling for what, it, what it's about and what it's pre- presenting to us. I've worked with the Emerald Tablet in, in a lot of different ways, uh, but basically it starts out with an orientation. In truth, without deceit, certain, and most veritable. In other words, it's trying to get you to come to this position where you're interested in just the truth. That which is above corresponds to that which is below, and that which is below corresponds to that which is above, in order to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. And just as all things come from this one thing, through the meditation of one mind, so do all created things originate from this one thing, through transformation. Its father is the sun, its mother is the moon, the wind carries it in its belly, its nurse is the earth. It is the origin of all, the consecration of the universe. Its inherent strength is perfected if it is turned into earth. Separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, gently and with great ingenuity. It rises from earth to heaven and descends again to earth, thereby perfecting the matter. In this way was the universe created. From this comes many applications. In this way have I told you the truth of the universe. Herein am I Christ's greatest Hermes. Herein have I explained the operation of the sun. What that tablet is telling us is that um, there's two levels or two parts to reality. There's an above and a below a realm of light, energy, and spirit, a realm of imagination and mental operations, and there's a realm of manifestation. There's a realm of darkness, uh, matter, gravity, uh, emotion, soul. Between are we caught in this in-between part, and that's where Hermes operated. By being in the in-between, we can enter the above, and, and use the principles of the above to project reality below, just as the one mind did to the one thing. The, the operation and how to do it is actually described in the tablet, and it's presented in these seven steps. Um, there's also been uh, taken out of the tablet a uh, chemical formula uh, from the uh, 
from the arrangement of the words and some of the interpretations. Um, this was Dr. Gottlieb Lotz, a German alchemist, spent his life doing that. And he turned out what is known as the Arcanum experiment, which is, uses these seven chemicals in the Emerald Tablet to produce and reproduce um, the, the steps of creation that are described in the Emerald Tablet. So there's a lot of different levels in the tablet. And, and, um, but really what we're interested in as alchemists is applying the principles of the tablet to our lives and to our laboratory. The whole idea about using the principles of the tablet in our lives is to work on ourselves. It's the great work. It's the great uh, transformation that we're capable of. And in other words, the alchemists viewed the universe as an evolving uh, system seeking perfection, ultimately seeking perfection. And they believed that there were signatures in everything that would lead you in the right direction if you were open to what these signatures were because there are correspondences between the above and the below. You could find signatures in matter, you could find signatures in situations and chemicals that would lead you in the right direction if you knew how to look for these essences or these archetypal principles in life and in the world. And they also believed that consciousness was a force in nature, which is one of the principles of quantum mechanics today. So using these three principles, they used what, what, what they came to, what's come to be known as the Emerald Formula, taken from the Emerald Tablet, and it begins at a, a point called calcination. It begins working with the element fire. During calcination, we use fire to burn up whatever the matter is, whatever the original matter is. In other words, you've got to break down the structure of the matter to work with it, to work with the essences. You can't work with something that's already constructed or, or there. Um, when I lectured to uh, the uh, California State uh, Government Workers Association, and uh, the, f the thing you want to burn down is the bureaucracy. You want to burn down, that's, that's, that's the thing that needs to be burned. And it is so hard to get that across to people in, in the state government. Because uh, the bureaucracy is like this, this ego of an organization. And you can't do anything unless you destroy that. And when I go in there and tell them that, I mean, half the people there <laughs> are, are just getting by. You know, they're just passing paper, and, uh, and they've got this structure that they're used to, and they don't want to give it up. And they, they like the idea of a hierarchical uh, management system. They like that idea that, well, I'm going to move up in three years, no matter what I'm doing, you know. And they, they like these periodic raises, but that's not a chemical organization. And that's the same thing in us. What's the bureaucracy in us? What's the structure in us? It's our own egos. You know, it's that identity that we all created. There was a time when we were children when we were egoists, when we were more open to these energies. And I think all of us know exactly when that was in our lives. And so we, in order to survive, though, I mean, I'm not saying ego is a bad thing. A lot of people get upset when I start attacking ego, but it's something that has to be overcome. You need an identity. You need an identity. But this is an old identity that's taken over your life. This is built up from fear and, and teachings of um, um, religions and schools and, and government uh, and, and parents that really have no, nothing to do with what's inside you. And you had to build up this ego from those things. Well, and the first step in alchemical transformation is to destroy your identity, to, to destroy that ego. And I know that's scary. But that's just part of it, and that you have to do that to start over. In the laboratory, if we're taking any matter, and hopefully it's the first matter, it has some first matter in it, that first matter in us is our soul. 
So we've got to expose our soul. You can't do that when an ego is controlling every thought you've got. Uh, this is a big, hard step. And the, the way to do it is use the intense fire of your own reflection to, to see and to look at yourself, to have like uh, a truth or dare with yourself, you know, like, like um, the Skull and Bone Society at Yale that they're making that movie about where, where George Bush attended and also his son W. One of the uh, ceremonies there was to was called the calcination ceremony, which in the Masonic tradition was part of this alchemy, but it involved um, uh, the uh, initiate getting naked and being in a room with another naked uh, adept, and sodium pentothal was injected into the initiate. He lays in a coffin, and he confesses all his sins, and he's totally humiliated uh, by the confessions of the worst things he's done and all kinds of transgressions about social mores and things, constantly berated by this other member. They're both standing there naked in the room. And, you know, this is how our president <laughs> went through. And our, maybe they let president-elect here, but uh, uh, it was all about destroying the ego. That's what boot camp's about. You know, you can't work with someone unless you just knock them down. And, but if you can do that inside your own mind, inside your own meditations, it's a great step, and it's a very, very refreshing step to get beyond ego finally. I mean, it's almost like the day it happens you're reborn because it's such a subtle way that ego controls our lives. Uh, it's such a relief to be rid of it. So that's what calcination's about on all these different levels. Remember, the alchemist worked on three levels always, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. They're not like a chemist who comes into a laboratory, uh, you know, upset with his wife because the eggs were running and the head traffic problems. And an alchemist would never enter a laboratory like that. A laboratory was a sacred place. The, the mental attitude had to be just right, and the, the stars had to be just right. And this is the time of year when the alchemical transformation would start in the spring, to make sure everything was just right, and that the attitude was just right, not, not uh, to bring no negativity to the operation. And they meditated to make sure they were pure inside, and that started with calcination. After calcination, the next thing in the laboratory is to take these ashes, which are usually white ashes, and that's what calcination means. Calc is white like calcium. You reduce the matter to these white ashes, which is, in other words, pure ashes, pure essences. And inside these ashes are the essences of soul or the essences of the first matter that you're looking for. So you, then the next step is you try to dissolve those ashes in water. Dissolution. That may seem like a simple thing to us, but but... The alchemists were just fascinated by this idea that, that something could dissolve, totally disappear in a solution. It's almost like they felt they were returning to the womb for rebirth. Sometimes you use uh, sulfuric acid and other acids, but the idea was to dissolve whatever remained from calcination. What's that mean on the personal level? It means taking the ashes of your ego, whatever's left, whatever identity you have left, and exposing it uh, not to thoughts, Kind of in calcination, you worked with thoughts, which is what builds up ego and how ego controls you, belief systems and things like that. In dissolution, you work with emotions and feelings. You open up your unconscious and let these tremendous forces from the unconscious to dissolve whatever remains of ego, to, to let feelings overwhelm you, to look at your, where you've been hurt in your life. In other words, the gold of your being is in your wounds. And if you can excise those wounds and open up those wounds, that gold is going to be there again for you to transform. And when we get hurt as children or adults or whatever, in our, and however we get humiliated in life, 
we instantly clamp down. I mean, you can feel it viscerally if you, when you get hurt. When you clamp down like that, you're putting part of your life force, part of yourself, into your body forever. You're enclosing it, encapsulating it into your muscles. And we, we know that from alchemical therapies like uh, massage and, and different techniques and movement techniques, and that they try to uh, release this energy or this gold that's in, trapped in our muscles, trapped in our chakras. So that's the whole point of dissolution, to use the rational power of, uh, of emotional being, emotional viewpoints, to, to uh, transform and expose further these essences we've got uh, to work with. So basically, the two processes of calcination and dissolution are like where we spend most of our lives. And most of us don't even begin to get out of this, these phases. These are huge, big operations for human beings and, uh, and for our society, too. The big thing about, I think, calcination and dissolution is that you separate the essences of soul and spirit in your personality and that you realize that these are two separate things. You know, we tend to confuse soul and spirit in the world, but really soul is a feminine thing. The soul is interested in sensation and, uh, and not necessarily linear thinking. It likes to experience things. Spirit, on the other hand, is here running up, looking for truth, the grand things, the grand plan, goals, striving. That's the nature of spirit, and that's a very masculine thing. Soul could care less about being perfected. Soul is an experiential thing. And you have to bring these two things together to make what's called the stone of the perfected, integrated personality. And basically that means working with feelings and thoughts and perfecting them and getting them under your control and released and energetic and living inside you again. I can, uh, that in my own life has been a very hard thing to do because I'm, I've had all this mathematical training. I'm an Aries, that makes it even worse. So I've struggled with this. I've tried to, to bring feeling, to bring water into my own being in, in many ways that I can. And I, I, I've coming closer, I think, to, to balancing these two forces within me. One of the greatest steps I made was at Vienna when I found uh, the Professor Gerdell and his teachings. At the same time, uh, at the library at Vienna, they had a huge section of original alchemy texts because Vienna and Prague were like the center of alchemy in the 1600s. And I went through these texts and I saw all these wonderful books and what they were describing, and I realized that with their engravings and the symbolic meanings that I picked up from that, um, I never left that room, basically. I'm still there today trying to figure out what all these texts mean. Alchemy, for me, was uh, a way to, um, to find the truth by, by entering and, and using my own soul and spirit in the right way. Today, I have great respect for mathematicians and mathematics, but I know that it's not the way to truth. I know that mathematical and linear thinking is not the only way to experience reality. And I think the world knows that too. There are so many synchronicities that knock us down when we start thinking that uh, logic is the way to go. For instance, I mean, well, the Y2K thing, how can we forget to put the digits in for the years or, or the, forget the trans, uh, change over feet to meters and crash on Mars? I mean, little things like that are always going to trip us up. I think. It was a couple of weeks ago I saw on television a, a commercial from Microsoft, and it was about Internet Explorer, and it said, real cheery commercial, where do you want to go today? <laughs> where do you want to go today? It kept repeating, and, and it had the insignia of the uh, Explorer. And then in the background, 
Mozart's Requiem was playing to add a little bit of dignity to it, you know. And it was very impressive, really, except what they were singing in the background in Latin just blew me out of my chair. I was probably one of the few people in the world who knew what it was because I spent so much time translating Latin documents. But uh, it said, Confitatus maledictus flamus acrivus addictus. Through this are the accursed and damned consigned to the gates of hell. <laughs> And it's so true. I mean, the computers are, are taking over our world. We, we put faith in computers like we used to in, in gods. I mean, uh, we can never trust computers. In fact, computers were invented to show which problems can't be solved in, in, by using both sides of your brain, basically. Alan Turing, the British mathematician who invented math, uh, computers in 1937, did it to, show, uh, to support the theories of Kurt Gerdell and show that uh, uh, what problems, whatever problems could be solved by a computer were a separate class of problems. Everything else was outside that. So basically, computers are still a game. You know, you have to realize it's a game. It's a very lucrative game. It's a very useful game. Uh, computers, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not saying we have to give them up and smash them and things. They're very useful tools. But, you know, that's all it is. It's not the way to truth. It has nothing to do with truth, ultimate truth. Truth is in here, and, and that's that's where it's going to remain uh, for millennia. It'll never be any different. That's, that's the nature of truth, and that's what the Egyptians taught, and that's what alchemy is about. So after we get these essences within us released during these first two stages of alchemy, the next stage is fairly simple. We just try to separate them out from all this quagmire we carry with us. We try to realize that soul and spirit are separate things. They're clean. We're, we're cleaned them off from all the, the dross of matter, the dross of our personality, the dross of um, greed or whatever we attach to them. So we pull them out and separate them from the solution. And the next step is to recombine them. This is called, in, uh, in plant alchemy, spagyrics, it's called the recomb recombination. In, uh, in alchemy of the Emerald Tablet, it's called conjunction, bringing things together, bringing two things together. In, uh, in plant alchemy, uh, soul is usually <coughs> described as the oil of a plant. Uh, you, you press a plant to get the oil out, and it's the nature of perfume because the oil carries the scent. In fact, the whole perfume industry was built by alchemists. The spirit of a plant, on the other hand, is its alcohol or its spirit. You know, this is what spirits are, and they were, that's an alchemical term too. So, um, so on that level, we've got soul and spirit, and that's what this part is about. We bring these two together for the, to create something new, to create something entirely new by recombining these essences, something lasting and new. And this is where uh, Carl Jung, this is kind of the end of alchemy, and we'll learn that, that conjunction is really the final step in alchemy. It's not the final seventh step. This is a circular process, and the end of it is this, this point of conjunction. We're bringing these two things together to create something new. It's like father-son creating a, a father-mother creating a son, uh, and Jung knew this. Jung was one of the greatest uh, alchemists, I think, in the world. He, he had a huge alchemical library, long before alchemical books cost $300 a piece from that period. And he, uh, he learned from alchemy. And he knew that the dreams of his patients were alchemical in nature. Some of the images were the same as the images in, in these old alchemy books. He knew that the conjunction, the coming together again, 
for soul and spirit was a new integrated personality. And for and actually in Jungian psychology, this is, this is kind of the last step. It's the creation of a, of a free-flowing, living personality within us. No hang-ups. We're here to experience. And that's what, that's what conjunction is about. However, in alchemy, you soon discover, as soon as you put something together, it starts to rot. It starts to, in other words, there's always some kind of contamination there. And a lot of times during conjunction, when you go through these spiritual processes, I've seen in workshops, people get inflated. You know, they get thinking, well, oh gosh, I'm really good now. You know, I'm better than everybody else. The alchemists call this monk's pride. Um, you know, it's kind of like I'm spiritually superior to you, and that's the downfall of this new identity. So really, what you have to be exposed to is some really deep energies from above, some really powerful archetypal energies. If you don't go into this last three operations of alchemy, it's going to catch up with you eventually, in this lifetime or the next. And the idea was, well, it's not the idea, it's what happens, really. A process of putrefaction takes place, where you, where you enter a depression, or you realize that you're not as great as you thought, or you realize you don't have the powers you thought that you'd have. And and in a lot of ways, this happens in the laboratory too. The work that they're, the matter that they're working with, starts to fall apart once it's been conjuncted. Or it's like a gross melding of opposites that you brought together, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't come alive. The alchemists actually tried to create life in the laboratory, and we're, that's what we're talking about here: is life. So, in our own personalities, we, we experience putrefaction too. It's a dark night of the soul. It's when we've lost all hope. It's when we lose consciousness, actually, sometimes. In, 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 it's the death. It's, it's how, how do you get to the other side? You have to die to get there. And if, it's, if you're living, you have to die living. And this is a very uncomfortable process for people. It's kind of a stumbling block or a wall to the higher alchemy of your being because, you know, as soon as we hear the word depression, you know, we don't even want to talk about it. You know, we don't want to talk to people who are depressed. We want positive things around us all the time. Well, the alchemist would never take Prozac. You know, I'm not saying Prozac's not a good thing because there are brain chemical malfunctions, and, but it's only, it should only ever be a temporary thing, I think. The alchemist welcomed, actually welcomed depression because they knew they could work with it. They knew that it was an opportunity to get themselves knocked back to their essences and telling them that there was something wrong somewhere. So they, in their meditations, they were dark meditations. I mean, alchemists worked with the dark powers as well as the powers of light. And that's what got them into trouble with the church. Uh, the church said, stay with the light. But, but to transmute and to become something different than the human beings that we are, that's necessary. We have to go to that next level. And we can't just worship it from afar. We have to go there. The, the, this whole thing is actually called fermentation, this stage after conjunction. And just like natural fermentation, it begins with a putrefaction. Uh, like grapes, you crush the grapes, you destroy the grapes, you put them in a closed barrel, and they start to uh, ferment, they start to rot, basically. And uh, sometimes the alchemists even added manure uh, to get this process going. And this rotting would actually generate heat. And finally, after a long, long time, after the substance had turned totally black, there'd be an oily film on top of the black matter that would appear one day, and it would be an iridescent film that 
had a whole rainbow of colors in it. It was called the peacock's tail. And it was uh, an indication for the alchemist that fermentation was beginning, that the rotting matter had opened up a portal to the above. Now that happens within us too. It happens when we're at the rock bottom of our life. And it seems that when the ego is just not there anymore, that something else comes in and takes its place. And that's the whole idea about fermentation. You're being fermented from above with, with transpersonal powers. Sometimes this happens in paranormal experiences. Sometimes it happens in mystical experiences. But you're fermented. All of a sudden, there's a light coming in from the other side. And it's a wondrous light, full of colors that's totally beyond your experience. So fermentation is kind of personally, on the personal level, like a religious experience for people. Uh, or the epiphany, you know. And you can set yourself up for that by going through these alchemical steps. The next step, the fermentation itself, is a very unsettling experience for people. I always use William Shatner for an example in the alchemy stuff because he's such a diverse person. He, he also has one of the biggest egos in the world. And uh, his calcination experience is still going on, but Trying to destroy that is something else. But anyway, Shatner, grand ego, was destroyed in 1968 when within months the Star Trek uh, show was canceled. He got a divorce from his wife. Um, his divorce settlement was based on his salary at Star Trek, which he didn't have anymore, so he had to pay that. Uh, he was forbidden to see his three daughters. Um, his father died. I mean, everything comes down crushing around him, and finally he smashed that grand ego he had uh, for a few months. <laughs> And Shatner actually ended up traveling across the country in the back of a pickup camper truck. I mean, from Star Trek to that in a month or two, uh, looking for summer stock work. He was penniless. But at that time, too, he was egoless. And uh, he was motorcycling in the Mojave Desert, not too far from here, up in Palmdale. Well, he was knocked off his motorbike, he says, by a beam of light that came from a UFO. That came from a tambourine-shaped UFO in the sky. And then he feels that he was abducted and taken onto the ship and actually examined by beings there and actually communicated to telepathically with beings there. And then he was returned, returned to Earth. And this for him was the great experience, the great fermentation of his mind. And Shatner, however, didn't take him long to, to fall back into putrefaction. He, after a few years, he started wondering, well, why aren't they communicating with me anymore? Why haven't they come back for me? And they probably said, phew, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he got worried about that. And that's when he contacted me, because I was involved in, in paranormal studies at the time. And he actually contacted me, wanting me to put him in touch with aliens. <laughs> well, or, or somebody who knew, uh, had alien contact. This was in 1976. We ended up making a movie together called Mysteries of the Gods, and I traveled around with him quite a bit. And I did introduce him to a few people. Um, one, one group that he wanted to join was HIM, which is call, was called Human Individual Metamorphosis. It was led by a group, two people who just called themselves the two, and uh, they traveled all around the country recruiting people. They said that in order to progress to the next level above human, you have to be taken off the planet in a spaceship, <laughs> come with us to the Rocky Mountains, give up all your goods, break, break ties with your families, give us your money, and, and we'll take you to the next level. <laughs> and I actually went to several of their lectures. I went to one in Waldenport, Oregon. And their message, you know, was kind of interesting. It was kind of, kind of alchemical. It was saying, 
you know, we, can, we have this ability to move up in the world and, and to, we have to connect with these transpersonal powers. Kind of made sense to me, but, but, you know, I wasn't taken in by it. But a lot of people in that audience that day were. Stephen Halpern, the uh, New Age musician, I'm sure you've heard of him. He was there. He came this close to joining. And uh, Representative Jackie Gleason, uh, Jackie Gleason was very interested in this, this group. Uh, Gleason himself was very interested in UFOs. So I told Shatner that I knew of the group that I'd done a little investigation. They drove around in a 64 Pontiac beat-up car. Uh, they communicated with their members by appeal boxes, which wasn't, you know, that advanced. <laughs> and so I told him, no, don't, you know, stay away from them. Fortunately, I did, because the two were Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate, and they, they continued their process uh, right up to, uh, to the disaster here in Los Angeles. And Shatner finally fell back into his old ego again, especially when he started making uh, movies, um, the Star Trek movies. I, I wrote a book about our experience called Captain Quirk. <laughs> Explained all this. I interviewed all the cast members, and they had all pretty much the same opinion of, of William Shatner, a nasty one. <laughs> Unfortunately, Shatner fell back into his old self again, but, but he did for a moment experience fermentation and didn't, just didn't make it to the next level, which was distillation, where you can step back from this process and, and look at what you learned. It doesn't, it doesn't mean he was taken on a UFO. You know, paranormal encounters don't have a lot to do with aliens from another. If there, I mean, what's more hard to believe, that there are aliens from another world here, or that we're somehow making this ourselves, we're somehow creating these things ourselves. It's a, an alchemical process. We, in our minds, can create UFOs in the sky. Jung knew that. We can create ghosts. We can we can move matter. We can move objects. And that's easier for me to believe than aliens or the, or ghosts or you know spirits on the other side. In any case, by distilling this paranormal experience or mystical experience, bring it down to basics where you can work with these powers that have been revealed to you. And that's what distillation is about. Distillation is almost like if fermentation is a religious experience, then. Uh, distillation is a scientific experience where you try and gain some objectivity. Uh, you try and go to the above and then you try and bring it back to the below and this whole process is just like distillation in the laboratory. You keep on distilling the experience over and over again until you realize the essences of it and the archetypal powers that you can connect with during distillation. And you can realize that you can use those powers. You can bring those transpersonal powers down in your life and use them for for, to make things that are really unbelievable in yourself, totally new things, totally new incarnations. And that in itself is the, uh, the final step, so-called final step in alchemy, the coagulation phase, where you bring this all together. You bring the above and the below together in a true new body. The alchemist you know, looked at these steps as kind of a progression from dead matter to living matter. Well, from the ladder of the metals, lead through gold, or the ladder of the planets, Saturn, through Mercury and the Sun and the Moon. It was a progression that they looked for. And, and alchemy is the same pretty much in Europe, in uh, Africa or Egypt, uh, uh, the Orient. They talk about, in the Orient, instead of metals, they talk about the chakras, the seven chakras instead of the, the seven metals. From Muladhara to Sahasrara, that's the progress from lead to gold. And they work with the, uh, the chakras in the same way that 
alchemists worked with the metals. European alchemists worked with the metals. In fact, some of the images of the chakra images and the meditation images are very similar to alchemical images. So it's a universal process that we're talking about. And the goal is to coagulate, to bring together something new on a new level of, of being. And, and the steps were described. But it's really, and, and this would be very disappointing for me if this was true, that there are these seven steps. You can check them off. I'll give you a list and you check them off and you're, you're enlightened. You got your diploma or whatever. It's not linear like that. A lot of, a lot of disciplines, a lot of uh, writers present it as linear and it's not. Uh, it's, it's a circular process. I usually picture it as a um, figure eight where the processes below, the process of calcination, dissolution, and separation, move up into the above with the processes of fermentation, distillation, and coagulation. And they meet in the middle in conjunction again. In other words, conjunction is a conjunction of the above and the below. And the alchemists felt that you had really at least to go through this three times. That what they call the lunar conjunction or the conjunction in the body, the solar conjunction or the conjunction in the mind, and the stellar conjunction or the conjunction with the stars. And this conjunction with the stars, each stage produces a new body. The lunar stage would produce a new physical body. They believed that physical transmutation uh, took place in the body. They believed that this first process created like a second puberty that released chemicals and, and later alchemists identified these, these two soul and spirit in the head as the pineal gland and the the pituitary gland, and they felt that it actually released hormones in the body to, to transmute the body, to let the body live long enough to complete the alchemy. Because if you don't complete it in a lifetime, you're going to be recycled in the universe until you get it right. <laughs> and uh, the next step, this, this solar uh, conjunction, was a conjunction in the head of knowledge, a conjunction of wisdom and light, a conjunction where it becomes part of you, not just something you have to remember all the time. It's there for you always. And this final conjunction, the stellar conjunction, they saw as, as another body, not a body of wisdom this time, but incorporating these other bodies into a new body. And Paracelsus, the great alchemist, named this new body the astral body. So the, this final stellar conjunction isn't even here. It's somewhere, somewhere else in an astral body on a different dimension. And that's the alchemy of the seven steps, which aren't seven steps, they're at least 21. <laughs> and if you think of it like that, it's a living, dynamic thing. You've got alchemy, really, and, and that's as good as I can present it to you, you know, in this short a time, that, that that's the image you should keep of alchemy, as a living, dynamic thing, not, not anything linear. You should just trust anything linear. <laughs> that's the lesson of mathematics. Well, I'm done here. Thank you very much.